insurance companies are going to always be in the market for things that will make their underwriters make better decisions. Hello, this is Matthew Grant, partner at Instec London. And on this week's podcast, I'm speaking to Mark Gagan, editorial director of Insurance Insider. Now, we are big fans of the Insider at Instec London. We use them to catch up on breaking news from the global specialty and reinsurance markets. And as you'll hear from Mark, you can usually find one of their team or Mark himself at our evening events. And Mark is well known in the insurance industry and he brings a fresh and actually encouragingly upbeat perspective of how and why insurers, brokers and even Lloyds are finally managing to tackle some of the toughest areas to change when it comes to adopting new technology and how he sees them using data and analytics. And if you're wondering why so many insurers are hanging around Monte Carlo in mid-September each year, then keep listening. We're also delighted to be supported by Insurance Insider for this month's series of the Instec London podcast. And as a listener of our podcast, you are eligible to download one free issue of The Insider, which is normally paid for. Uh, you can find the details in the episode notes. Mark, welcome to the Instat London podcast. Great to have you join us. You've, uh, you've talked on stage, uh, you've been at events quite a lot, but uh, it's great to turn the tables around. And have... Yeah, well, this doesn't happen very often, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it, actually. So you're far away. How's your August been? Is, um, is the, the world of journalism a bit like politics, where you all take August off, or have you been busy in the background working away whilst everyone else has been enjoying Well, we have been busy. In fact, well, we're camp followers, so we just do what the camp does. So once the Q2 is kind of finished, uh, we run away and take a break before Monte Carlo, which is the next I'm sure we're going to be talking about a bit later on. But um, so um, right now we're in the pre-Monte Carlo phase when it's, there's actually a thing on our shared calendar that says no one is allowed to take holiday at this time because it's a busy time. Good. Well, we'll come, come and talk about Monte Carlo in a minute. And as both you and I have been there quite a few times, we, we know it is not definitely not a holiday when you get out there. No uh, way. But let's talk a bit about you. So you're editorial director of Insurance Insider. Um, you started off your career in broking. Um, I think you left about 20 years ago. So yeah, I'm kind of intrigued. This is somebody well, who started I, off in broking. And I suppose, well, yeah, it's one of those things, I suppose. It's, a, it's the classic story people always say when they, uh, about insurance, that they sort of come into it... Um, in a sort of secondary way. So I was a Spanish graduate. I really, my primary thing was I wanted to use Spanish. Also I had a secondary idea that I wanted to be a writer or journalist, but I'd been very vague about that idea. And what I had done is I'd done a Spanish degree. I'd lived in Madrid for a couple of years and had a great time, loved, loved uh, living and working in Spain and everything about it. And so when I went to the careers department and I just graduated, it was sort of the question was, hey, have you got any jobs uh, where you have to have a bilingual job? Uh, and uh, the, all the ones that came up were insurance related. And funny enough, so that autumn, after nice, my final sort of graduate summer, um, I was walking up and down Lime Street. And in fact, I bumped into two or three people on my course because uh, uh, the insurance industry was hiring language graduates uh, left, right and center. That was in the early 90s. So I did seven years of that. I got lots out of that. I got uh, to live in Madrid again, and I got a Spanish wife out of that. So that was very good. So then I started to think about this other thing I'd always wanted to do. I was working for the biggest privately owned, well, the biggest broker in Spain by miles. It was a privately owned company. It was part of the Unison group. So all the veterans out there will remember what Unison was. It was Johnson Higgins and Gras Savoir and Jauchen Huber in Germany. And there was a Giri Carvajal was the Spanish part of it, and I worked for them. Um, 
I'd loved insurance, but then Aon took us over and it was time to reflect. I thought I'd take the redundancy check and be brave and, and go and do something before I got too old. But I'm really glad I went into it because I actually went off to become a journalist. That was around the dot-com boom, which is great, which gave me another string to my bow, which you know, we can talk about later about InsureTech because it does remind me so much of the dot-com times and that InsTech vibe that you, you, you've been so great at sort of creating. It reminds me of my time as a very junior journalist working on a, on a magazine called WebSpace back in the year 2000, my first job in journalism. And it was you know, going along to things like First Tuesday. But anyway... I had five years out of, out completely having nothing to do with insurance and sort of working my way up the greasy pole of uh, journalism. And then in 2005, a vacancy came up on uh, Reinsurance Magazine to be the editor. I never got out of insurance because I found it boring. I just, I just felt that I had this other itch to scratch and I hadn't quite scratched it with, with insurance. And, and also what I really liked about insurance was all the new stuff. And actually the great thing about journalism, of course, is that uh, you can ditch all the boring stuff because it's not, you know, things that aren't interesting aren't news. They're not features or they're not things that people are talking about. Uh, people talk about things that are new and interesting and so great. So that really suited me. And so I didn't really look back. Having had all that insurance experience and reinsurance experience, it was really obvious. And then I had three years at uh, Reinsurance Magazine, a great, great magazine. Uh, in that intervening time between 99 and 2005, the Insurance Insider in 1999 was really small. It was, and I'd never seen it in 1999 when I was actually a broker. I'd definitely seen Reinsurance Magazine sitting on little coffee tables in the waiting areas of uh, uh, you know, underwriting rooms. Um, but uh, Insider was nowhere. Um, but when I picked it up as a competitor, as an editor of a rival magazine, it was, you know, it was a revelation. It had really come a long way in the five years that I'd been out of the market. And it was fantastic, really well written. It kind of, it, me as a practitioner, it was written in the right language. Anyway, it was one of those things. You kind of mark your cards. And the core, the core of the insurance Insider, I suppose, is uh, wholesale specialty and reinsurance business. It, it, the Insider came out of Lloyd's of London. It was very much a London-only thing. Back very in its very early days, it was uh, much more and very Lloyd's focused back in its early days. But of course, everything's globalized in that time, and and so the Insider has as well. Of course, we're now fifty people. We've got about twelve or thirteen people in New York, and that's growing all the time. And uh, so we've become a global business, just like everybody else. The people we write about have become global businesses. You know, London went to Bermuda, Bermuda went to London, everyone went everywhere, and and so that's been a really really interesting journey. The business is probably. About 10 or 11 times bigger than what it was 11 years ago, and it's still growing. Well, well done. I mean, I'd say the uh, Brokings World's loss is definitely, definitely journalism's gain. It's been interesting actually following Insider over, I guess, the last 20 years ago, and I'd say you'd certainly sort of grown up over the time. I slightly miss some of the cheeky commentary you used to have, but I guess there's a time and a place for that, and now it's I much suppose, more yeah. like, about yeah. getting uh, sort of quick insights and uh, getting the news out. Yeah, there, a, there was it. a time. There was yeah, there was a time and a place for that, and it, it sort of ended. Uh, yeah, I think perhaps yeah, the early insider, some of it was a bit like a kind of private eye. It was very satirical, irreverent, certainly anti-establishment in every sense. Because uh, actually, the DNA of the insider was um, uh, uh, names litigation groups. This is pre-reconstruction and renewal names suing their suing their underwriters uh, and winning uh, uh, and. There was a newsletter around that, and that's sort of that's the kernel, the kind of core of the DNA of where the insider came from. So, being satirical and sort of starting with a negative slant against the industry, it was a time and a place, and we realised that 
we had to move on and uh yeah so it's because yeah it's a lot more serious uh you know we we, we want to be the paper of record uh we want to break a, we break a lot of news and also we're much more analytical and sort of technical than we ever have been and now the resources available to us you know we've got we've now got a new uh, uh we've got a new launch called uh, inside pnc which is focused on the u.s market and that is very and that is from an analysis point of view and that's and that's you know that's um people with pointy heads and spreadsheets and all that stuff that we never would have had in the early days of insider when it was hardcore news um but i suppose we're getting more and more sophisticated the way we are and also our readership is more sophisticated uh and expects expects you know that expects a lot of us these days and of course we do a lot yeah and what's interesting is is as the insurance industry itself starts to you know realize the benefits of data it's no surprise that from a journalism's perspective, it's a data journalism is becoming more and more critical as a way of having sort of fact-based commentary and helping inform some of the, the insights you're, you're giving. Um, just, uh, just on the sort of way you, you, you collect the information, and you, you mentioned there about sort of talking to some of the industry leaders, but I mean, how, how, that give me away any state secrets. I mean, how are you able to sort of break the news so quickly? I mean, I've seen things that you know, I, I knew about personally that I literally just heard about from the source and within five minutes there's a, an insider email going out telling the world. I mean, how, how do you get on top of it so fast? Well, I suppose it's, um, it's knowing people, it's having that empathy and that level of trust that you build up over really, really long periods of time. Uh, that people who maybe, of course, we're not in the market, we're just talking to everybody in the market all the time. Uh, and collectively, and then sharing that information within our team in a collegiate way so that it's more efficient. We're all chasing down different uh, leads. We share every bit of uh, snippet of information we've got. This is how journalism works. You create a circle. I suppose I used to be an insurance broker, and now I'm a broker of information. And why would someone take a call from the insurance insider? For one, they think it might be about them, uh, but often it's not about them. We're actually... um, we're verifying, we're attempting to verify information that we've picked up from somewhere, somewhere else. And they might be the sort of people who might want to know that, uh, that, that what is happening. That, so the people who are likely to help us are people who really value knowing what is happening. Uh, and then that's the power of media is that you're aggregating all that information and then sharing it. We've talked about disruption and technological disruption. That's something that's almost impossible for a machine to, uh, you cannot have a, that kind of trust relationship with the machine so i'm feeling very fairly confident that you know there's a uh, social media lists of professions that are going to be out of uh, out of business maybe i think the brain surgeons are going to be out of business before um in- insider journalists <laughs> i love that quote the, the, the world will need journalists for longer than it needs um needs brain surgeons but no I mean, it's, it's actually it's very true and if you look at companies like palantir uh you know the, the california-based um, it's a massive data science company. I mean, they may make a very strong case about the combination between very sophisticated technology, but they have their deployed engineers. And you, without the people to sort of run the technology, you can't get the good insights. And you know, journalism is very, is very similar to that. But just talking a bit about technology and the, the people you're talking to. So I don't think there's a company, an insurance company out there today whose leader is not talking about the benefits of technology and, and how they want to embrace change. And, but when you, when you talk to them sort of off the record and you, you've got a very good perspective across a whole range of different companies, um, do, do you think this is really at the core of, of their strategy? I mean, are there people out, out there across the board that really are making tough decisions about it? Or is this still very much in isolated cases that where it has to happen, it has to happen, but otherwise people are much more focused on the more traditional ways of generating income through underwriting? 
That's a good question, Matthew. I think you should become a journalist. So if, you know, if, you, if it doesn't work at Interstate, you can come and join the Insider. But it's a really good, um, uh, it's a really good point. Everybody knows that the wind has changed. Uh, uh, Ten years ago, of course, you know, we're at that higher end of the insurance market, which has had a fractious, uh, the, to say the least, relationship with technology, with lots of big failed IT projects that, you know, transformation products that didn't work out, uh, you know, over, over, over running and over budget and then not working and not being fit for purpose that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, but, but everybody knows the wind changed about three or four years ago. Uh, and so any public company needs to have, be ready for that question from an analyst or someone to say, what are you doing about technology? What is your technological strategy? But there's a massive difference between knowing that you need to be seen to be doing something about technology and, uh, and transformation and all that good stuff and actually doing something about it. So there's a lot of window dressing, a lot of funds, a lot of, um, oddly enough, there can almost be siloed uh, technological departments uh, that then the rest of the business can go around and, and ignore. So I would say it's far too early to say, because I could, I could re we could reel off a list of, you know, who's made the most eye-catching things, who's done this and who's done that. But actually, it's, it, we'll only know in 10 years when some are streets ahead of others because of what they've done today and what they've done over these next few years with this, this, this crucial time that we're in. Uh, and some will be yielding fantastic dividends from all that good stuff that they've done. But I think that the biggest change is not gonna be, it's not about money, it's about, it's cultural change. And it's, it's about almost forcing people to, 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 to do things in a different way, uh, or at least to think about things in a different way, or just bring in different, ways of doing things and, and to, to bring in that idea of embracing that way of a, a new way of doing things. And that is the hardest thing in our marketplace, as you know, uh, what's happening at Lloyd's now will be really interesting because the leaders will have a, actually have a genuine incentive to invest. So if you spend hundred million on some new kit and it means that you write something hundred percent and everyone else has to follow you behind, you know, that, you, that you're now, and they're following you automatically uh, in an algorithmic trade. Uh, and now you're you're getting a real return on the fact that you can lead that business because you're going to have to write it electronically. You're going to have to do it instantly, or not just electronically, automatically. Uh, uh, you know, and 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 be out in the marketplace and actually binding that business automatically based on parameters that you've set. At least now we're getting to a stage where I think we might be able to see that there's a genuine incentive because the problem we've had is there'd be no incentive to get ahead technologically speaking. You know, other than on the risk side of things, I'm sure obviously someone like you, Matthew, you know, you know that when you were out selling RMS in the early days, you know, it, this was a whiz bang that if the people who really understood it would, would be able to give themselves an edge. And, and there are similar businesses, obviously, you know, that business like Saitora, where you, you're selling the fact that you're giving yourself an, an edge um, by, by being smarter than everyone else and helping you pick risks better. That, that's always been a good thing. But that's been something you can sell. But, but some of the more back-end stuff, you know, there's no incentive. No one's had any incentive other than the platform's burning, which at the point now it's slightly singed, uh, where expenses have just got out of whack in London. Now we've got an incentive. Um, and of course, London has only ever had that incentive. It's like, we will fix it because we are sinking or we are on fire. You make a very good point, which is it's, it's too easy to be critical on the one hand to say that large insurers or Lloyd's are not, are not changing. But, but the reality, as you say, I mean, the, the, a large amount of that time is just trying to handle business as usual and incrementally you know, things 
things aren't failing. It's just a little bit, little bit more each time. They're getting slightly worse. And unless there is something like a catastrophe risk where you can see a fundamental difference from moving from a sort of back of an envelope calculation to actually modeling the risk, which has huge implications, the use of capital, cost of, cost of reinsurance. And I think it's one of these things that people tend to overlook when any kind of innovation change happens is you do need to have that sort of groundbreaking, you know, explosive moment when things fundamentally changed. So is there anybody specifically though you would point to out of the companies you're talking to, you say that, that they as individuals, because you, you talk about culture and culture starts at the top, but you know, they actually get it. And yes, you know, there is, whilst there is no burning platform that means they have to change, they, they are looking ahead. They've got um, supportive board, supportive investors, and they are, really are making a difference Certainly, there are some great MGAs that, 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 that have done that because they've used that as their edge uh, from day one. They've known, you know, if you're an MGA, you know you have to be a better underwriter than the person providing you the paper. Uh, but also, you need to be a better distributor. You need to be more efficient underwriter uh, because you're at, otherwise, you're just adding 10% or whatever costs on top of everything else. And that isn't going to work. In the, the, you know, in your paper providers, well, why do I pay 10% extra to get something that I could do myself? The problem is that but you can't do it yourself and you can't do it anywhere like as efficiently or as well as the MGA you're giving that to. So some of those MGAs have been absolutely brilliant on that. You shouldn't be dismissing Lloyds. It's so easy for us to do that. I mean, that's not fair because you're talking about lots. There are so many streams of incremental improvements that are happening all the time and all those, you know, the target operating model uh, uh, projects which are all coming on stream you know we've the, the, the DA SATs thing for, for delegated authority underwriting fantastic um, you know solving lots of really old problems and, and, and the oldest one being electronic placing finally getting over that hurdle with PPL that, that was a really difficult thing to do um, but see if we you know so now we're finally in a position where the London market is going to be approaching you know 100% uh, everyone agrees now that that is going to happen 100% um, you know, electronic placing, which is fantastic because that, 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 you know, a lot of people, you know, I've lived through um, failed projects like EPS, which was electronic placing support. Uh, and then there's the Connect project, which, which was when I'd just come back as a journalist, was just about to fall over then. Again, you know, business, things that have failed, uh, high profile things that have failed uh, and cost quite a lot of money and then made, made it very difficult for uh, politically for any leadership in the London market to, to act. And so we've had that fallow period after, after that. And now we've, you know, it's, it's been very good to see uh, the leadership really grasp the nettle and say, we have to do this now. And, uh, and it's happening. But uh, I'm really looking forward to your event, actually, in, in September, because now what we need, I think what you need from a technological point of view is a solution. So in your event, you're going to do a reverse pitch where the industry tells uh, people, tells the technologists rather than the other way around, telling the technologists what problems they need to be solved rather than technologists coming up with a load of solutions and then finding problems to solve afterwards or saying, hey, I've got this really cool thing, can I apply it in, in insurance? But I think one of the things you should pick, somebody should get up and pitch, um, how do you get brokers to use PPL or uh, electronic placing systems for quoting? Because you know, I would talk to someone of my generation, uh, old colleagues and say, PPL, are you using it? Yeah, sort of in the same way, but they're, they're not really using it. Um, they're using it when they get a firm order and they throw it to the technician in the same way they used to throw a slip at them. I mean, literally throw them back in the old days uh, and say, off you go. You know, I've placed this business. I'm going down the pub. And, 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 um, and with PPL, it's a bit like that. But it's like, well, you know, the technologists or the, the, the idealists would be saying, why aren't you using it for quoting your business? And, and, and they'd be saying, well, 
in reality, my clients want 15 to 20 different options on everything I quote for them. And then the firm order comes in and it's none of those. It's none of the above anyway. It's some approximation of all of them with a bit of a discount for the fact that it's a firm order. And uh, they're never going to use it unless... Now, but we know that technology will come up with really cool solutions for this at some point, you know. Uh, but this, at the moment, people still have to do all that stuff on the back of uh, two sheets of A4 because... You know, it has to be done that way because it's said, well, what about this? What about that option? What about this option? What about I do a low limit or I sublimit that, I uh, sublimit the product recall, but then I've got a low deductible. What, you know, I mean, there's all that stuff. Um, happens, it happens all the time, you know, and clients want tons of options. So you, it would be unrealistic to expect a broker um, when there's not even a firm order, there's no money uh, changing hands to, to enter in 27 different versions of, of something when they know only one of them's going to come in if if at all obviously because you might not get an order anyway so uh that would be really interesting and then that would be that would be the most perfect sort of uh, electronic revolution at that point but you know that i think we're a long way off that but i think it's all about baby steps i think the point is that we should never dismiss how far everybody's come and you know just because the fact that we've got a long way to go uh you shouldn't should never discount how far things have come and obviously that there is that problem in any syndicated market, of the, you've got to go as slow as the slowest laggard. I mean, there's a big difference between a sort of B2B technology when it's still a relatively small market with limited funds versus consumer applications. And everyone is, or, or, so all the people that are appearing to resist putting data in, are, I bet all of them are using you know, an iPhone or, or, or some kind of phone and, and just used, you know, used to using technology. So it's not a fear of technology, but it's just the reality, as you said. If these things take a bit longer, there probably does need to, well, it almost certainly does need to be a dual approach of doing it maybe yeah, after the fact initially. And then you learn and they build and they evolve. But, but I guess it, it's, it just has to, yeah, it just has to happen and people have to recognize you can't get there straight away. Yeah, and it's tiny. Uh, that, it's tiny and it's complicated. So, you know, it's, far more, it's totally logical that, um, you know, um, car insurance should be the first thing that sort of goes, you know, digitally native and mobile first and all that good stuff because it's absolutely brilliant. You know, I got some fantastic, my son was learning to drive. I wanted to put on my car insurance. I realized that was quite complicated. And I did something online and it was brilliant. And it was, you know, in, in, in the sort of lemonade style, it was delightful. <laughs> Literally, as a consumer, I was delighted. I paid about, you know, I mean, I, I, I four or five clicks, got the whole thing done. And it was like, you know, and it was a policy that incepted on a Monday and then, you know, expired on a Tuesday. But, you know, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. But that, it's much harder to do that in, in, in if that was an oil rig and that was uh, an oil rig with $3 billion of cover. Well, <laughs> yes, but and also don't forget, I mean, telematics has been going for 10 years and it's yeah. only really now that, that you know, telematics and, and, and actually back to the iPhone, I mean, it's because iPhones have become ubiquitous that people can use them for that kind of on-off Sure, I mean, don't have to use everything, but it, it, I think that's what people forget. When these things suddenly start to become usable and easy to use, you think they just, they've just turned up, but actually they've been sort of working, you know, been rumbling away in the background. On this whole InsureTech movement, uh, I mean, I think people have now have at least stopped turning up at insurers and telling them they don't know anything and how ridiculous they are, <laughs> and you know, here's my new solution. But you know, you've, you've been following this quite closely. You've been to our events. As you said, you've had a, a couple of your events. Um, what's your sort of perspective on the role that, so startups and scale-ups have as part of really driving change in the industry. And you know, to the extent that large insurance companies are willing to take the time and the risk to work with earlier stage companies. 
Well, first of all, I'd say I love coming to your events because, again, it reminds me of that early time in, in, in the early, you know, late 90s, early noughties when I was just studying out as a technology journalist. Um, you know, there were things like First Tuesday. There were these kind of happenings where people would just sort of get together and talk about interesting things. And maybe somebody would put their hand in the pocket and sort of buy a few drinks. And usually maybe that was a lawyer or, or consultant or somebody who would sort of invite us all along. But the journalists, the sort of entrepreneurs and the people with the money, the venture capitalists, and people are all mixing in the same room. And that's what the kind of vibe I love about coming to Instech. It's very raw. It's real. And it's sort of it's like it's genuine love of it's it's the the genuine enthusiasm for sort of you know it's 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 absolutely real and it is on a monday night you know it's people who've come out on a monday night and it's not glamorous in that sense it's not <laughs> you know uh, it, it you know it 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 it's it's real and it's ro- roll your sleeves up get get involved and get to know people and find out about stuff and meet some interesting people get some good ideas as well i learned this at one of your events actually you know you do a startup because probably most startups are born out of people who are utterly frustrated with the industry that they're working in. They think sometimes it's the only way I'm going to get this done is by leaving my job because I've been trying, I've been on my boss to do this for the last God knows how long. I've been through every divisional meeting and then it's got finally got put up to the board and the board didn't really understand it. And then they said, how will this work? And then it sort of became political because there were two silos uh, that did, were both competing for it or uh, didn't know who was going to be in charge of it or who was going to have the incentive. Are there any, were there any incentives to who, who's going to profit from this uh, or who's going to have to bear this on their P&L as a cost? Uh, and all that kind of, you get in all that politics and actually suddenly it, it might make a lot of sense just to down tools and go and, you can only sometimes follow those kind of ideas um, as a startup. And so many of them are really collaborative and really smart, you know, things that will make you a better underwriter. Insurance companies are going to always be in the market for things that will make their underwriters make better decisions. Uh, things can help you process your policies better. That's absolutely brilliant. I mean, everyone's going to love that. And of course, you know, you, you know from your background in RMS, I mean, if you can pick your, navigate the catastrophe risk problem, uh, better because you've got fantastic models that are really accurate. It's always been that way. It's just more prominent at the moment because I think some of the, the benefits are far more obvious now and the usability has really got there and smartphones are particularly exciting and you know the fact that they're going to, that, that data is suddenly becoming more available from the Internet of Things uh, that you know the, the you know power stations and oil tankers and super tankers and particularly you know, for me I mean a great moment was at one of your events where I was you know again sitting from our sort of lofty heights of specialty and syndicated global type risks and reinsurance risks you know we were wondering you know it's all very well um, personal lines is really interesting and I mean we went to an Internet of Things evening at your at your, your event and um, you know Instech and and people talking about platforms and somebody who had a Fitbit for pets. And I was thinking, God, this is not really my kind of scene. And then suddenly someone stood up and talked about um, how their biggest client was uh, the port of Amsterdam. And suddenly I woke up and said, this is really interesting. And this is someone using Internet of Things technology to deliver insights on risk management at a port with big ships going in and out and stopping them bashing into things. It was brilliant, and suddenly I thought, this is something that my readership really probably doesn't know about and needs to know about now and realizing. And I think with the fact that there have been so many really interesting applications within, within Marine and with everywhere else, it's, gonna, it's, it's absolutely it's really, really interesting times.
Yeah, and there's a whole theme there actually about learning from different areas. There are like the microinsurance happening out in, in, in Africa and other areas where they've got you know, very efficient ways of selling insurance bundled into seeds and fertilizers and then monitoring rainfall. And then if the rainfall goes above a certain level, you get a payout straight to someone's phone. phone. Um, and yes, a lot of it, you know, the technology starts there and comes back in again. But I think the other thing just on these startups, you know, what's interesting is, the, the, as you said, the people doing it are often coming out of industry. And actually, generally, the average age of somebody doing a startup is 40, 43. It's probably even older in insurance. Um, and so it kind of brings us on to another, another theme, which is you know, startups aren't just the kind of conventional insurtech ones, but you know, Stephen Catlin's set up. Convex, Steve McGill's set up his his new broker. What's your sort of you know, what sort of lessons you would take away from what they've been able to do, and also how they are approaching it? You know, along this whole theme of technology and, and well, it's really, yeah. Well, actually, on the technological theme, I think both of them are both incredibly anti anti legacy. We'll see what happens if they, they feel at some point they may have to buy something, but they're kind of they're kind of into, very much in two minds about that. When you see something, someone like uh, what's really interesting with Stephen Catlin, you know massively experienced veteran of the marketplace is you know has got a, a totally horizontal enterprise-wide outsourcing deal um, and he's saying that that is so they're outsourcing everything that's not core function and core function is you know underwriting uh, underwriting paying claims uh, and all that back office is being completely outsourced uh, and, and and probably you know the data and all that kind of good stuff um, but that's giving him a three-point, he's saying that that's giving him, straight away gives him a three-point expense advantage, which is a lot. Uh, again, I think Steve McGill's very, you know, uh, is, would be loath to getting into too much uh, legacy as well. But it's quite interesting. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're, so they've got industry veterans who've been given a blank sheet of paper and plenty of funding and saying, right, if I redesigned you know, my industry from scratch today, this is where we are. And so that they're state of the art and the three points on the expense ratio, off your expense ratio from day one, it's, it's not a bad win. Um, uh, and very, very interesting. Also put, Stephen put it in this way. These are, of course, uh, I, I asked him, isn't that a big risk, you know, outsourcing the whole of your back office? Uh, you know, what happens if it's sort of not there anymore? Uh, he said, well, no, obviously we've done all of that and the regulator would have asked us about that and our investors know about that, but we've got all the contingency planning and everything's all there. But at the same time, but the, don't forget what the advantage is. Of course, it, it, it gives me the computing power that I would have only had if I was a $2 billion business because I've never been able to afford to do this. It's stuff that, you know, I've got, you know, much more powerful databases and computing crunch power than I would ever have had in a million years if I was, uh, you know, if I was doing this myself as a small business, which currently has not very much income. Um, so the fact that he's sort of, you know, committed to, 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 to outsourcing means that the outsourcing can give them that global power and that cloud power that they would never have had. So really interesting, really interesting. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Amazon and, and Google, who we've had on stage and are coming back, actually, I mean, that's, yeah, that's really what they're interested in insurance, you know, to a large extent, AWS and, and, and the Google, Google Cloud platform. They recognize that that's, that's what they can offer. And I, yeah, I think completely get why yeah, Stephen would go down that route, because if your if you're technology backend provider doesn't work, then you switch them out and get somebody else. If, if you've, but if you've built a whole business around that, then it's really difficult. And I was talking to, talking to somebody yesterday for one of the large insurance companies is actually working with Palantir. And they said one of the biggest benefits they get from working with Palantir is that if they want something done, 
they ask for it and they get it done. If they go to their own internal IT department, it goes onto a waiting list and it takes them six months and they get back a sort of much worse version of what they thought they wanted when it's, when it's too late. So I think that's, you know, back to our earlier conversation about how the established insurance companies, I mean, that does feel like that is a, uh, is a, I would say it's an emerging threat because you saw this back 10 years ago with the Bermudan reinsurers coming after some of the big cat losses. But, you know, the ability of someone to come in with, with you know, not just hundreds, hundreds of thousands of dollars of funding, but billions of dollars of capital and funding is potentially a real threat if you can, if you can reduce those um, costs off your, off your bottom line. Yeah, no, it's a massive advantage. Also, yeah, the other thing Stephen said about that was it's, it's culturally interesting because you've got that, because it's horizontal, it avoids all your silos of, within your business in the way that, you know, that your finance department might have had this IT project and then, you know, your underwriting department's got an IT project, your claims department got another IT project and they probably don't even all talk to each other. If they've all been done by the same people, uh, they might be able to, there might be synergies or there might be cross-fertilization and things that you can that while you're building this, that you can say, well, actually, why don't we plug that into the underwriting right now? Uh, so you get of the, some of those, again, um, sort of uh, silo removal by having something that's horizontal, again, which could be really interesting. Mm. Good. Well, so just changing tack a bit, um, you're off to Monte Carlo in, uh, I guess, what, a couple of weeks now. It, bizarrely, Monte Carlo seems to sort of arrive at the same time as some major industry mm. event. It looks like this year it could be happening just as, as three large hurricanes are making making landfall but but for those who haven't been out there and and sort of worked as hard as you know you know have over the years could you just say a few words about what happens at monte carlo and then you know just some of the themes that you think well, you'll be hearing from the people you're talking to oh yeah yeah well it's uh, if you've never been to monte carlo it's it's been going for about 60 years um it, was, it used to in the days of currency controls and uh you know uh, expensive air travel or probably sea travel um it, it, it was it was a really efficient way of bringing the whole world together because literally everyone would go. Uh, people who buy reinsurance, people who sell reinsurance, people who broker reinsurance, and people who service those reinsurance would all be able to go and talk to each other. And I suppose it's strategically placed sort of just in the middle of the third quarter. You're starting to look towards your 1st of January renewals, but you're talking in generalities about things you might be doing, the fact that you, whether you might buy a bit more insurance or you might be a bit less or you might be wanting support for getting in some new line and in in your in your territory anyway it was an efficient way of uh, getting around the market uh, so that it becomes so it's sort of done in the format of uh, a happening uh, that is not really organized but it's sort of organized but everyone uh, everyone does speed dating and organizes their own diaries and you do half hour slots on the hour on the half hour uh, all day breakfast lunch and dinner uh, and with a few cocktail parties thrown in, but it's actually extremely hard work uh, running between meetings, uh, get, you know, uh, trying to get changed for dinner and, 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 and try and find out where your next meeting is and bumping into people. It's, it's, it, but it, it, it's invaluable, obviously, and as a journalist, it's, it, we're absolutely in clover. We love it. Uh, we're going to be talking about the impact or otherwise of Hurricane Dorian, which is currently scheduled to be Cat Four, which is four out of five, uh, very damaging hurricane, which could be hitting uh, West Palm Beach, which would be a very expensive place in the East Coast of Florida, north of uh, Miami. So we were talking about that because we were, generally you're talking about it, it, it's a time to talk about market, uh, and we're talking about a market that has been losing money, um, a market which has discovered its discipline a little bit. 
uh, in the last uh, 18 months uh, where some of the some of its major players have been uh, restructuring their books cutting back on different things uh, and uh, where the ILS market which is the insurance linked securities market has had a difficult time uh, it's the first time that some of its capital would have dropped in the last since 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 it sort of really got going 10 to 15 years ago uh, and now we'll be looking at what will that what will that be happening what what will how will that affect the marketplace because we've got we could have capital locked up we could have um uh, ILS funds looking to reload capital that means going back to their investors and asking for more money because some of that capital even though they may not have lost it it might be locked up and not movable uh, because it could be subject to a loss if the loss got worse and we've had a problem in the last couple of years where some of the some of the some some of the uh, uh, losses have got worse we've called that loss creep particularly in Florida uh, where um, a lot of plaintiff lawyers uh, love uh, chasing after hurricanes and uh, give themselves a good payday. Mark, it's been, been great catching up. And I just want to say thank you very much to you and Insurance Insider for sponsoring our podcast. And also, you know, really appreciate you spending time with 200 of us in a railway arch in, um, in London alongside the Thames rather than going home to your family in the evening. I'm not quite sure how you explain to them why that is more preferable than seeing them. But obviously they are... Uh, Oh, they're great, um, but, you know, but I get, they get them. It's only once a month, so uh, we're just really. I'm really glad to be associated with what you're doing because we get a lot out of it. That's the things we get a lot out of it. You, you know, you're the real experts, and all we're really doing is trying to look for the parts of it that we can apply to our subset of insurance. And it's only a subset, you know, uh, uh, and it's that specialist end of insurance. And we're always looking for, you know, what is our angle? And obviously, you're far more, you know, you're the much broader church. And, and that's why I think we've got a good symbiotic relationship. And so long may it continue. Fantastic. Yeah. And also increasingly, we're seeing people coming in from outside of the insurance industry that have got yeah, great access to clients, good technology, good data, um, you know, kind of hit the ground running, which you, you tend not to come across elsewhere. There's still quite a lot of around the startups, but and they're still very relevant. But I, we're going to see a lot more this year from you know, companies um, like Safety Culture that have recently joined up. You know, who, who do a lot with audits for um, for large commercial buildings and companies that actually got some really useful data for insurance. So, well, that's tremendous. Um, so, Mark, if anybody wants to find out more about uh, what you're up to or insurance insider what's the best place for them to to, to get access go to in, uh, insuranceinsider or one word.com and there there'll be there are free trials and all sorts of things uh, you do it is a paid for product but you do you can you can get a free trial for a while before uh, someone asks you for any money and you can check it out and then cajole your cfo to uh, get a a company wide subscription that's what you really need to do and well worth it well brilliant well thank you mark and i'll let you get back to planning for monte carlo and we'll, we'll uh, see you in um yeah, see you in a, f- a few weeks at steelyard see you soon bye-bye so as mark mentioned we have our next event coming up on the 24th of september at the steelyard in london when we'll be holding a reverse pitch so this means that as a change to our normal schedule when we have technology and data companies talking about what they're offering instead we're going to be hearing from insurers and large corporations about some of the challenges and opportunities they have and what they need help with in data and analytics Uh, places are filling up fast you may still have a chance to register for this event if you miss it you can of course hear it uh, coming out later on our podcast next event after that will be on the 22nd of October 
uh, to register and also to see what we have been doing at prior events and everything else we're up to at Instec London. Go to www.instec.london. Uh, and finally, don't forget, if you want to get a free copy of Insurance Insider, you can see the details in the episode notes for this podcast. <laughs>